us accept I wish science agreed with you. that it is within our power to halt and reverse climate change. We are the first nation to go underwater if we don't stop fossil fuel. We are a generation of scared people, but very ambitious. And welcome to the fourth episode of Planet B, Everything Must Change, a podcast that explores what the key pillars of a globally just Green New Deal can and must look like. Over the last three weeks, you may have heard myself, Harpreet Kaur-Paul, and my co-host Dahlia Gabriel walk through the themes of work, land, and infrastructure as we attempt to reimagine a future in the era of climate breakdown. This week, we're taking on water. Our oceans are home to spectacular ecosystems and wildlife. They cover 71% of our Earth's surface and sustain the lives of billions of people. Our oceans regulate our climate, produce half the oxygen we breathe, absorb our polluting emissions and feed the water cycle that produces rain and fresh water. It is no surprise then that water, or the lack of it, shows up in every aspect of climate breakdown. Whether it's the salty seas rising to threaten land from Bangladesh to Vanuatu, increasingly extreme droughts from Brazil to Madagascar, glacial melts in the Himalayas or Andes, or flooding across Africa and Europe. Water is both a destructive force and a vital resource is a central feature of our climate stories. In this episode, I'll be joined by a host of expert guests to discuss capitalism's relationship with water. I'll be asking how we came to see our oceans as merely a vehicle for trade or as a site of limitless resources. And we'll try to put a splash of blue in our global Green New Deal asking how do we go beyond our current experience of capitalist extraction? And what would a sustainable relationship to water really look like on planet B? As always, a reminder from me to order your copy of the illustrated book on which this podcast series is based. Perspectives on a Global Green New Deal is free and you can order your copy now at wwwglobal gnd Underwater pipes spilling a torrent of crude oil. Sea levels are rising faster than even the gloomiest forecasts predicted. Wildlife killed, beaches closed. Industrial practices are having a devastating impact on ocean life and severely depleting fish populations. It may look just like a scene from a disaster movie, but this is real. When the ocean caught fire in the Gulf of Mexico, we will, as a result of this deal, be able to catch and eat quite prodigious quantities of extra fish. (laughs) 
In episode two of this series, we heard from Professor Noam Chomsky, who talked to us about the burning of the Amazon rainforest that grabbed headlines in 2019. We discussed how capitalism was driving this process, with industrial agribusiness pushing the international demand that finances fires and deforestation. And we considered how this extractive mindset that characterises land as a commodity to be bought, sold and extracted from is leading to the destruction of our natural ecosystems. The relationship between capitalism and water is no different. Tēnā koutou, uh, my name is Tina Ngata and I am a descendant of the Ngāti Poro people. Uh, I live on the East Cape of Te Ika Māui, which is more commonly known as the North Island of Aotearoa, New Zealand. And so we're a very rurally isolated uh, people, a very small uh, people. Uh, we have about 500 of us living in our, in our community. And I work for my people doing environmental planning and protection, especially for our marine estate and for our forest estates and our freshwater systems. And I am also a researcher researching uh, microplastic pollution in Tamuananuia Kiwa, whose colonizer name is the Pacific Ocean. And um, the, the title of my chapter for Perspectives on a Global Green New Deal is um, Ocean in Our Blood. In Perspectives on a Global Green New Deal, Tina wrote about being a Pacific woman and a member of a water nation. She wrote about indigenous relationships to the oceans and how, in her culture, polluted waters are a metaphor for a polluted mind. When we caught up with her recently, we asked her to tell us about how imperial capitalism has affected her people and their relationship to the natural world. 500-odd years ago, we had Magellan come along, set his eyes on our collective oceanic region, which was then called Temuananuyakiwa, and he decided he'd just call it the Pacific. And it's stuck. And it's stuck because the dominant power systems that have been in place as a result of the process set in train by Magellan, by Cook, by Pizarro, uh, by Columbus, that dominant power system set in train by that project of imperial expansion out of Europe has wound up dominating how we perceive the world and how we name everything and and um, and the relationships, especially the power relationships around the place. That was always a project of extraction and commodification is a part of the extraction process. You need to be able to commodify everything into units in order to be able to manage and facilitate your extraction and regulate your extraction and sell your extraction. And so the commodification of water and the commodification of everything in water and around water is a part of that. So off the back of that process of naming our space, the Pacific Ocean, that set and train a series of events which also included drafting colonial borders through the ocean and saying this is where Samoa begins and this is where Samoa ends and this is where Hawaii begins and Hawaii will belong to the United States of America and this is where 
New Zealand begins and ends. And this is not just something that happened a few hundred years ago. The Convention on the Law of the Sea, which ratified exclusive economic zones and said that this zone of the ocean belongs to these people and everything in it, largely colonial governments. That was 1982. And we still live under the Convention on the Law of the Sea. And the Convention on the Law of the Sea is based on a colonial European law called Mare Liberum, which comes directly out of the Doctrine of Discovery, which is a series of papal laws that essentially said that European colonial and imperial powers have the right, have the divine right, to murder, to subdue, to dispossess, and it it explicitly says bodies of water, to take those bodies of water, and also to harm the people that belong to those places. And it also mentions profit. Now, this is in the 1500s, and it says, for your use and profit. So this is a long-standing process of commodifying human bodies and commodifying and dispossessing those people of their waters as well. And that has been the basis for this experience that we have that is still present in some of the international doctrines that we live under, like the Convention on the Law of the Seas, like many other doctrines as well, and it really does need to be unpicked. As Tina explains... This is a process that has continued over hundreds of years as Europeans arrived on beaches around the world to force a narrow conception of value on Indigenous populations and ensure through violent colonisation that peoples and places could be labelled, segmented and exploited according to their potential to make a profit on the European market. This colonial history still defines our relationships to the oceans today. The vast complex of laws that govern our ocean systems are there to allocate who quote-unquote owns which bodies of water and therefore who is permitted to sail them and more importantly who has access to their natural resources. In my ancestors' time, you know, that oceanic body, Te Moana Kiwa, we travelled on it, we worshipped the moana and we prayed to the moana and we have made families on and in the moana. We used to give birth in the moana and we fed from the moana and we still do. 70 to 90% of the protein of oceanic peoples comes from the moana, comes from the ocean. And so it's a huge part of our world. It's everywhere we see when we look around us. And it was how it was our travel route. It was how we got to one another. So it was a connector. And in more recent times, especially when European powers came into play uh, and a lot of them were landlocked, they treated the ocean as a border and as a boundary and a barrier because it didn't, they didn't have that same interconnected relationship with it. And, and that has also bled through into how they've treated it. So what we have is a system where the biodiversity, the needs and the behaviour of the biodiversity is at complete odds with the European boundary setting ethos and mindset within which they've politically arranged it. So uh, a lot of these transnational issues aren't able to be addressed. And the United Nations have deigned themselves to be the parent body for who gets to extract from what they call the high seas, which we're still 
still a collective connecting area for us. But when that convention was put in place, it became the United Nations who would govern the high seas. And that, again, has all been around who gets to carry out deep sea drilling, who gets to carry out weapons testing, who gets to dump weapons waste, who gets to dump other forms of toxic waste, chemical waste as well, who gets to overfish and and who gets to set their shipping lanes to transport goods where and when and how. And all of those really important decisions uh, have been allocated by virtue of these colonial laws that are at complete odds with the laws of nature and at complete odds with, you know, indigenous and social justice around that space. And they align perfectly with imperial mindsets. We'll hear more from Tinanakata later in this episode. But for now, I wanted to turn to a conversation I had with Elizabeth Johnson, a professor in the Department of Geography at Durham University. Elizabeth co-authored a piece in Perspectives with colleague Jessica Lehman entitled Blue Imaginaries for a Green New Deal, which outlined the limitations of the existing progressive discourses around ocean governance. I asked her about the politics of water ownership, its history and how that affects our current relationship to what we think of as our oceans. So the the existing system of ocean governance is quite explicitly born of capitalist extraction and resource management. And sort of at every turn, thinking about ocean histories are a history of embedded injustices and histories of resource extraction, whether that is about the traversing of the seas to enact a history of colonial extraction on land, or it's about fisheries, or it's about oil and mineral extraction from the sea. So for example, you know, the the UN Convention on the Law of the Seas stipulates these different zones of ocean governance. The territorial sea uh, extends 12 nautical miles from a nation state's coastline. So nation states then have access to, to sort of governing both what crosses the surface and the resources that are beneath the sea in those cases. And then beyond that, for 200 miles from the coastline, exists uh, what are called exclusive economic zones or EEZs. And those were created in 1945 in relation to a bit of policy created in the United States by President Truman. It was all about gaining exclusive access to oil and mineral deposits beneath the seabed. And we can even go further, further back to think about how frameworks of the high seas, what are governed as part of, you know, a kind of global resource, not attached to nation states, but are meant to provide resources as the, um, as the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea stipulates, it's meant to provide resources to the benefit of all mankind. Even the high seas was codified into law as part of the management of fisheries. So even the sort of wildest areas of ocean governance, the way that we think about them was by and large codified into place as a result of European and North American 
attempts at the managing resource extraction. So in short, I think that your question about the complex sets of juridical regimes and how they're tied to extractive histories and exploitation, you know, they're, they're absolutely integral to it. And it's going to be really difficult to think and imagine and plan our way out of those histories. Outside of official legal and political doctrines, oceans also occupy a peculiar space in today's popular imagination. On the one hand, they're viewed as a site of catastrophe, a sign of impending apocalypse as waters rise and ice caps melt. On the other hand, they're seen as a resource of plenty, which nation states and corporations need to act quickly in order to exploit. We've seen this in recent months in political arguments about who gets to own fish following Britain's exit from the European Union. Fish that are already being over-depleted, taking its toll on biodiversity and impacting access for generations to come. But perhaps the most evident example of this in recent decades has been the international race to discover and claim deep-sea oil and gas reserves. As Dahlia discussed in episode one of this series, Boris Johnson's government, which likes to position itself as a climate leader, is seeking to expand oil and gas extraction in the North Sea off the coast of Scotland. Oil giants Shell and Sikapoint Energy are currently seeking permission from the UK government to open a huge new oil field called the Cambo Field in the sea west of Shetland. The consequences of this extraction on people and ecosystems is devastating, as we saw with the terrifying images of oceans burning in Mexico's Yucatan Peninsula in July of this year after an underwater pipeline burst. But it is also true for the victims of accelerating droughts, storms, floods and disease events that are compounding in their severity with every new barrel of coal, oil and gas that we extract. Yet, that does not stop private multinational corporations in their race to further exploit our seas as a resource for their profits. I think that that paradox and that paradigm is really tied to a kind of persistent historic fantasy. Fantasy of or a nostalgia for a frontier. And a frontier is like a site. It's an imaginary site where kind of danger and near certain death and there's a lack of rules and an infinite possibility. All of those things coexist alongside one another. And I think we see that in Silicon Valley's obsession with kind of colonizing Mars, but we also see it with the future imaginaries surrounding ocean use and governance. Um, and the oceans have kind of long existed within that imaginary as a site of danger on one hand and infinite possibility on the other. But right now, that in, that sort of imaginary of infinite possibility seems ever present and continually tied to this idea of blue growth and the blue economy, where it appears, as, as Jessica and I write, where it appears as untapped and limitless potential. So um, so in my research, I see that with a lot of conversations around the genetic potential of marine organisms, 
which are viewed as a potentially revolutionary source for pharmaceuticals, biotech, bio-inspired technological innovation. And there's a sort of continual return to conversations around some kind of limitless resource, whether it's algae or sea slugs or uh, jellyfish. There's a continual return within science and policy conversations toward these potential resources that might solve for or provide a technological or a biotechnological fix for ocean futures, for human futures, for environmental futures. There's this continual return to this idea that there's limitless potential waiting and available if only we're able to tap it. Um, And as Jessica and I write in the chapter, that kind of limitless potential is incredibly problematic for thinking about environmental futures, but of course it's also sort of by and large tied to a kind of resource extractivism. As we discussed in episode two, the same logic that views land as a site of potential profit also pushes techno solutions to seek out a biotechnical fix for climate breakdown. Whether it's planting trees for carbon capture, deep sea bed mining, or harnessing the power of sea slugs, this logic functions as a way of legitimizing existing practices and power structures. It is a desperate and fictitious attempt to maintain business as usual, to avoid accountability for the consequences of resource extraction, or confronting the ways in which we must reorient this relationship in the face of ecological collapse. As Elizabeth touched upon, capitalism doesn't just treat water as a site to be extracted from, or as the yet unknown magical remedy to our present crises. But it also transforms water itself into a commodity. Whether it's being used in vast quantities by the meat industrial complex, the retail industry, or simply running from your taps, water, the basic necessity of life, always has a price. More than 2,000 million gallons of water are used and disposed of every day. It takes over 250,000 miles of piping to deliver and collect. So whoever we supply can be sure that every time they turn on the tap, every time they flush, there's water. The 10 water and sewage businesses of England and Wales. In the UK, water utilities were privatised in the 1980s when 10 regional water authorities were sold from public ownership. Around the same time, the World Bank and the IMF were pushing countries in the Global South to hand state-run utilities over to the private sector. Often, foreign multinationals headquartered in the Global North in return for structural adjustment loans. In 1999, a consortium composed primarily of US, English and Spanish companies won a concession to manage the Bolivian city of Cochabamba's water system. Exclusive control and price hikes, which inflated the company's profits, caused mass upheaval into the new millennium. Communities, farmers and indigenous peoples came together to resist the privatisation. They eventually won and the process was revoked. Victories like these against privatisation have not dampened the intensity of the neoliberal agenda. The World Bank continues to provide support for utility privatisation proposals, including earlier this year in Nigeria, 
where a third of the population lacks access to clean water. Under capitalism, water, the commodity, is too valuable a product, with too high a demand, to just be given away for free. One of the busiest freight highways in the world, most important shipping routes, the most important shipping lane in the world, at a virtual standstill. It's been completely blocked. And it's blocked, clogging one of the world's main shipping arteries, carrying 12% of the world's trade. So the pressure is really on to get her refloated. When it comes to the politics of our oceans, it is also important to think about who and what is travelling across them. In our globalised world, it is amazing to think that 80% of trade still travels by boat. Maritime transport has been the bedrock of global trade for centuries. Convoys perpetually crisscross the oceans carrying every type of consumable and commodity. These movements are practically invisible to those of us waiting for our next day Amazon deliveries, but they are vital to understanding the role of colonialism in shaping how the modern world functions. When no nation can survive on domestic products alone, who crosses the seas becomes an increasingly vital question. Sure. Um, my name is Lale Khalili, and I'm a professor of international politics at Queen Mary University of London, and I'm speaking to you from Hackney in London. Last year, Lale published a timely book entitled Sinews of War and Trade, which explored the past and present of shipping infrastructures, particularly around the Arabian Peninsula. The book is an account of how maritime transportation is not simply an enabling mechanism for trade, but central to the very fabric of global capitalism. In it, she explores the ways in which our current system of shipping functions to carry forward colonial regimes of profit, law and administration. In light of the ever-given ship that blocked the Suez Canal in March of this year, becoming a social media sensation just months after Lale's book was published, I asked her how this moment shone a light on the realities of the global shipping industry. Over the course of the six or so days that the ship was stuck in the canal was that, of course, there was a huge backlog of ships that were waiting in the Gulf of Suez, but also at the head of the um, canal in the Mediterranean, trying to cross through the canal. And Actually, after the second or third day, a number of the shipping companies started routing their ships around the Cape of Good Hope because they weren't sure how long it was going to take. The ship was finally freed because a bunch of different sort of companies that knew how to dig up ships and do this kind of salvage arrived. And there, there was some, uh, the conditions improved in terms of weather and wind. And there were tugboats and other specialist equipment. And finally, the ship was freed. And um, it was detained by the, by the Egyptian authorities until they, they could extract some money from the insurers for the shipping company. And, and of course, in, you know, through that whole process, what everybody um, didn't, really think about were the 30 or so um, Indian seafarers that were stuck on the ship and who were, you know, obviously scrutinized quite strongly by the Egyptian government and who weren't sure how long they were going to be detained. Finally, the shipping company paid some hundreds of millions, the shipping company's insurers paid some hundreds of millions to the Egyptians and the ship was released. In that process, of course, not only the contents of Ever Given were delayed from arrival in Rotterdam, which I believe was its final destination, 
but also all of the other ships that were behind Ever Given. Um, and of course, all of the other ships going in the other direction. As you probably know, India is a major manufacturing center, for example, for vaccines. And so there was some concern that some of those ships might be carrying vaccines to Europe. Um, and of course, there was a lot of not only just-in-time manufacturing kind of parts, supply chains, uh, sort of elements in the middle, but also apparently IKEA uh, furniture, apparently tires, apparently all sorts of other things that are manufactured in East Asia and which are sent to Europe uh, were stuck on Ever Given and the ships behind them. And of course, oil tankers as well, because Suez Canal is one of the biggest areas for oil and uh, natural gas tankers to traverse. And so there was a delay also in, in the arrival of all of those goods. The blocking of Suez exposed how reliant we still are on water as a vehicle for global trade. It also revealed how this has been invisibilized in the popular imagination, where the realities of just-in-time shipping are concealed in order to maintain the illusion of a smooth, automated digital economy. This is most clearly the case when it comes to those who live in water as a workplace. As Lale explained, what wasn't covered in the media during the Ever Given debacle was the stories of the workers stuck aboard these ships and the working conditions that they continually endure. Particularly during COVID-19, seafaring workers suffered to underwrite global supply chains around the world, predominantly for the global north. When the pandemic hit, a lot of ports and airports shut down. Essentially, transportation in a lot of different places came to a halt. And while there was a need for cargo to still travel, and cargo did in fact travel quite a bit, with exception of some brief period where China's ports were shut down, um, the seafarers could not get off the ships because of sort of the ban on movement or sort of processes of quarantine and because the airports were shut. Um, seafarers who had come to the ends of their contracts simply could not disembark. And so you had people that, that by regulation, you're not really supposed to be uh, aboard a ship for more than nine months at a time. Uh, but people who were, so, you know, who had been, who had served their nine months out, ended up not being able to leave the ship. And so they were, they were going around the world. And in some instances, people that had been on board a ship for two years had not seen their families for two years. Um, and of course, in many instances also, uh, particularly um, in the earlier parts of the pandemic, many of the seafarers who worked in, for example, not, not in cargo ships, but on cruise ships, would catch the illness from from the passengers. And because, of course, they live in such cramped quarters, COVID would just spread like wildfire through, through the crew members of these cruise ships. On cargo ships, you also had instances of crew members catching COVID when they arrived into port. And in some cases, when they would go out to sea, they, they, ha they did not have access to healthcare. There's no, there are no medics ever on board these ships. And so you did also have instances of seafarers who passed away and whose bodies actually were put in the fridge in, in the ship as it went around and until finally arriving to a port which would take the bodies of the seafarers who had passed. You know, so so it's, it, it has been an incredibly difficult set of circumstances for, for seafarers during the pandemic. Under capitalism, water is not only seen as a space of limitless potential a resource to be extracted from and commodified, but it plays a fundamental role as a site of exploitation. Trade by sea is also a huge source of unregulated emissions. 
If the global shipping industry were a country, it would be the world's sixth biggest emitter. Yet the conceptual division between land and sea means that for many of us, what happens at sea is out of sight and out of mind. This is our ocean and our cryosphere, the frozen parts of the world. They shape our identities, our way of life. We are starting to adapt to unavoidable changes. Reducing greenhouse gas emissions further protects our livelihoods. Together, we can build a sustainable and equitable future for all. Our future is in our hands. Good, good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to this press conference of the IPCC to present the special report on the ocean and cryosphere. We have known for a long time that we are destroying our oceans and how we are destroying them. We know that polluting emissions cause ice caps to melt, increasing sea levels and killing coral reefs. The IPCC's 2019 special report on the ocean and cryosphere in a warming climate resounded past alarms for the more than 2 billion people who live in low-lying coastal areas, deltas or glacial communities. The report also outlined the incredible scale of increasingly ferocious storms, floods, landslides and wildfires as oceans warm. And it puts the cost of how much damage communities around the world will face as a result in the trillions. I think the IPCC reports, including that 2019 one, as detailed as they are, they are really detailed, are tasked with creating a global imaginary. And ocean environmental governance is intensely complex. Uh, it is both local and global. And I think one of the things that reading through that report reveals uh, is that we don't yet have a framework for dealing comprehensively or even locally with ocean resources in ways that make sense in light of a pending future that they predict. So there are a lot of difficulties that are raised in those contexts. And I think the response, the biggest response to the 2019 report has been this incredibly uh, renewed investment in ocean sciences. So we've seen from that the beginning this past year, 2021, was the beginning of the UN's decade on ocean science for sustainable development, which includes not only incredible investments in developing ocean science, but also investments in policy development and policy innovation, new collaborations between scientists and policymakers, especially around the marine biodiversity of areas beyond national jurisdiction. It is meant to further instill biodiversity governance within the Convention on the Law of the Sea, especially in the areas of the high seas. So there's this renewed uh, attention to global policy. There's this renewed interest in funding toward the development of ocean science. And there are massive ocean literacy programs that are being developed as well that have come out, I think, not just out of the 2019 IPCC report, but a lot of the research on oceans and ocean governance that have come out before that. So there's a lot in that 2019 report, and there's a lot that's come out of it that reflects how much more seriously I think the kind of global conversation has been taking oceans 
and ocean sustainability into the future. Despite a turn toward taking ocean futures more seriously, many of our current responses to oceanic collapse have been tokenistic and individualistic, focusing, for example, on reducing plastic consumption or recycling to support marine conservation. While there is no doubt that better consumption patterns and waste systems would give marine life a healthier environment, they alone cannot offset the warming patterns that have seen temperatures rise higher than any century for at least 3,000 years. Whether it's through the promotion of big dam projects or carbon capture that leverages the ocean as a carbon sink, climate action being proposed by governments around the world is implicated in deepening water insecurity now and for future generations. I'm all for a Green New Deal. It's not enough. We got to have a blue new deal to save our oceans as well. Progressive climate activists in the global north have recently been pushing back against existing neoliberal responses by forwarding their own concept of a blue new deal for our oceans. This seeks to recognize the imperative to restore and respect marine habitats, expand ocean-based jobs, and protect coastal communities. Proposals include replacing the destructive industrial overfishing we currently see with sustainable community-based fisheries and restorative ocean farming. They include providing grants to protect coastal communities with cultural, spiritual and ecological connections to their surroundings and supporting low-income communities living in flood-prone areas to more and more secure zones. Yet, concepts of the blue economy or blue growth that still rely on over-extraction of the sea will only replicate harms on land. Examples of this include proposals that leverage ocean resources as biotechnology and carbon capture, or that look to the sea for the cobalt and other metals and minerals necessary for renewable energy, phones and electric car batteries. Commercial deep-sea mining in the Pacific seeks to extract metals and minerals from the ocean without concern for how this will increase emissions, harm ocean diversity and impact fishery supplies for local communities. These solutions, which aim to keep the insatiable growth model intact, continue to conceive of the ocean as a site of untouched wealth, waiting for commodification bringing land-based injustices to new blue frontiers. This logic is rooted in current systems of ocean governance. Parts of the ocean are owned by sovereign states, while the high seas and their resources, as well as the resources of the international seabed, have been codified into international law as being for the benefit of all mankind. So in effect part of a global common, yet, in practice, access to ocean resources are carved up for exploitation by powerful nations and global corporations. The ocean, in fact, has been a significant space for the forging and maintenance of racial capitalism. Because if we think about the ocean and maritime transportation being the vehicle of uh, imperial expansion, colonial expansion, from the 15th century onwards. Um, and if we think about the way that so many of the different 
sort of conceptual apparatuses that shape our capitalist modernity emerged through these maritime sets of relations, um, I, I think it becomes clear that we do have a lot to reimagine. So let me begin by, for example, um, giving some sense of what it is that I'm talking about. The idea, for example, of sovereignty or of an absence of sovereignty over the sea often hides the fact that the he who has, and I'm using that pronoun considerably, um, he who has the guns will be the sovereign, even on a space like the sea, which is supposed to be unowned. World's oceans are supposed to be a global commons, and of course they're not. He who has the resources to be able to extract from the ocean and to, through the force of the gun, actually project their power over the oceans is going to be able to also dictate what counts as free trade, dictates what counts as, you know, resources and who gets to have those resources. And that's everything from subsea mining to the exploitation of, for example, the fisheries and other kinds of products that we extract out of the sea, but also to the way that the sea itself, especially at, uh, where it meets the shore, where, where it meets land uh, on the shores, um, is subjected to uh, the depredations of capital through land reclamation, through dredging, through sort of the dumping of pollutants from the ships. Um, and so in a sense, the waters of the sea Precisely because there's an alibi of them not having a kind of a sovereign over them also become the space where they are exploited ruthlessly by those who have the power to exploit them. A Blue New Deal needs to fully step away from treating the ocean as a space for limitless, frictionless capital accumulation and call for the end to deep sea drilling. A blue growth model runs the risk of repeating a colonial ideology which sees the ocean as empty, virgin and waiting to be exploited. When thinking about the politics of water and climate breakdown, the systems we build on land are as important as the systems we build in and through the ocean. This is particularly true when it comes to building infrastructures of adaptation against floods, droughts and rising sea levels, which made up 74% of natural disasters between 2001 and 2018. It also applies to making existing systems that treat and distribute clean drinking water fairer and more accessible. At its core, in order to fulfil its responsibilities to frontline communities, a global Blue New Deal must overcome the false divisions between land and sea. It must tackle head-on how things like inequality, borders and war have played a central role in commodifying and degrading our oceans. As it stands, existing proposals for a Blue New Deal have shied away from these often thorny, controversial topics. Events like floods, droughts and storms cannot be prevented once underway, but as we discussed in episode 3, what turns an event into a catastrophe is the broader context of resource inequality and insufficient infrastructure in which it takes place. 
As part of bridging the gap between the politics of land and the politics of water, a global Blue New Deal must urgently tackle the growing weaponization of water as a conflict resource. Safe drinking water is increasingly scarce and inaccessible. Water insecurity affects roughly 40% of the world's population and climate breakdown destroys already precarious infrastructures of water treatment and distribution. Women in Africa and Asia are having to walk further and further to access this most basic need and rising temperatures will lead to an increase in deadly pathogens contaminating fresh water sources. Most mainstream analysis around this falls back on the explanation that population growth and economic development has driven up water demand worldwide, while climate change has decreased access to water. This picture obscures the often political drivers of water scarcity. Control of water use and access has long been deployed as a weapon of war and occupation. As climate breakdown drives up the intensity and duration of droughts, Water is becoming increasingly central to how nation-states exert power over populations within and between their borders. The Saudi-led war on Yemen destroyed the water and sanitation infrastructure of the already drought-prone country, leaving 19.3 million Yemenis without clean drinking water. Hi, I'm Elif Sarakan. Uh, I'm Kurdish, based in London, and I'm an activist of the Kurdish women's movement. Elif told us a similar story of how restrictions on and diversion of water supply has been central to Turkey's decades-long occupation of Kurdistan. Not only as a tool of population control, but in order to fuel the development of the Turkish state. In October 2019, when Turkey invaded northern Syria, one of its first targets was the Aluk uh, water station in Serakania, which is called Rasalain in Arabic. And since then, this water station was has been fixed and then put out of service, fixed, put out of service just continuously. And it's become this quite, quite this symbolic thing in terms of the Turkish state occupation of parts of northern Syria. Um, it's particularly historically and symbolically important because Kurdistan, you know, sits in what what is called the Fertile Crescent. You know, obviously the Fertile Crescent is Kurdistan and beyond, but the rivers, the Tigris and the Euphrates flow directly through Kurdistan into other parts of the region. And this is also what particularly the Turkish state has been doing is controlling that water flow because the rivers also go through Turkey. There's been times where there's literally been like only drips of water reaching other parts of Kurdistan because Turkey controls it. And, you know, this is related to, of course, colonial control, but also the kind of economic breakdown that is taking place in Turkey as well, because it becomes more and more of a need for particularly Erdogan's AKP government to be able to source and resource other so-called neoliberal development strategies to still be able to resource and, from his perspective, take care of this new middle class that he has created in the few decades that he has been in rule, like, you know, this neoliberal political Islam that has created a new middle class in Turkey. And of course, he needs to maintain the resourcing of that, otherwise he's going to lose votes. So, you know, all of this, I think, is quite interrelated, but perhaps that's quite useful as an initial context. 
Whilst access to safe drinking water has been denied as part of war and occupation, powerful nation-states and global corporations have insisted on redirecting, diminishing supplies away from local communities who need it and towards industries that generate profit through extreme, unnecessary water use. Kurdistan was divided into four nation-states 100 years ago, Turkey, Iran, Iraq, and Syria. Um, Of course, there's much to say about last 100-year history, but one of the ways in which the occupying forces of various sections of Kurdistan has maintained its oppression-suppression of the Kurdish people has particularly been in how a politics of water has developed. And for example, in Syria, particularly the 40 years before the revolution in Rojava, which took place in 2012, there was an imposed strategy of what is called industrial monoculture agriculture, which really relates to a politics of water as well. You know, the Syrian regime for 40 years only allowed wheat to grow in northern Syria, so in Kurdish areas, and therefore the release and the use of water was basically limited to growing that. And if there was an attempt to grow other things, you know, not necessarily just in your backyard, but I guess like in more of an industrial way, this was just simply not allowed and it was banned. And this was actually controlled in a very authoritarian and at times quite militaristic way. And therefore the use of water was granted only for farmers and uh, people and companies and organizations that were growing wheat. And not to mention, and again, this is how the people of northern Syria, so particularly the Kurdish people, but of course not limited to, of northern Syria were were forced to sell the wheat that they were growing directly to Damascus and had to then buy the bread that was refined and made with that wheat at, you know, multiple times of the price. So I think this is to kind of demonstrate that the politics of water obviously affects every area of life because you don't even get to use like, you know, mill or refine or make bread from the very wheat that you're growing. And that was some of the characters of the Syrian regime's rule on northern Syria that kind of stood out the most. Water scarcity should not be understood as a natural or inevitable outcome of a growing population and increasingly dry world. More often than not, it is the product of a system that commodifies and weaponizes the resources we need to survive. No part of the world is completely safe from droughts and floods. So reorienting our system of water governance away from profit and towards people is an urgent task for us all. Research has shown us that if we focus on our well-being, we have sufficient resources to meet the needs of a population three times our size. To make this shift, we must break down our focus on commodification, accumulation and the borders we have artificially placed on land and in the sea. It means refusing to carve up the world's water into roots and resources, which are then controlled by those with the most economic, political and military power. This approach to water is a juvenile one. It has dominated for just a small part of human history. It is greedy, impulsive and untenable. It is also, of course, not the only way. 
There are many alternative philosophies of water, philosophies that have sustainably coexisted with oceans, rivers, lakes and rainfall for centuries, respecting the various forms of life they sustain, including us. The decommodification of water could create space for us to collaboratively engage in social and ecological restoration try to repair and recover the ocean diversity that we've lost and are losing, and unlearn the growth imperative that got us into this mess in the first place. Yeah, you know, I think probably the most appropriate thing to do before they start looking at our understandings of the world, and we know everything is urgent, which is why it's really urgent for the global climate movement to actually consider its relationship to colonialism and really heavily critique the underpinning principles and mindsets that inform their approach to climate resistance. And I say that because a lot of people want to look at Indigenous responses and there is a lot to learn. I'm not denying there's a lot to learn from Indigenous responses. But if you haven't worked out how colonialism, imperialism and extractive mindsets might sit within your approach as an NGO or as a movement, then you can inadvertently or not wind up extracting Indigenous knowledge and Indigenous approaches. And you can wind up decontextualizing those solutions as well and inappropriately applying them. And what happens then is, one, you don't get the solution that you want. Two, you've wound up extracting and reinforcing the mindset of extraction. And three, Indigenous solutions wind up getting blamed when the actual failure was a colonial mindset applied to Indigenous solutions. And so there is a lot to be learnt from us and the people who need to really take on board the core fundamentals, which is how do you manage power and how do you seed space appropriately? How do you assess your own levels of self-interest and then shift that into understanding the needs and responding to the needs of, of others and thinking collectively as well. And I mean, that's something also that we've seen in the, in the COVID pandemic responses as well, which is that Indigenous groups are much more given to thinking collectively for the good of many than the more recent imperial mindsets, um, imperial and colonial mindsets as well. I think I'll just add, if I can, that I think that the idea of ocean as connecting different struggles is enormously important, and there is a very long history of that. Um, again, I'll go back to Marcus Redeker and Peter Leinbaugh's book, The Many-Headed Hydra, which is precisely about those communities of resistance that emerge around the Atlantic Ocean. And uh, and I think that it is, it, it's important to recognize that the space of exploitation is indeed the space of movement and connection. It's a space of sort of aspiring towards freedom as well. And then I think that that's what makes the sea such a sort of a fascinating object of study and struggle. Our oceans and seas need not divide us. They need not be what marks the borders between one country and another. The restless movements of our vast and powerful oceans have inspired alternative imaginaries rooted in interdependence and connection for centuries. 
struggles to reclaim our oceans from the grips of corporate and colonial power can be what unites us as we fight for a more open, just and sustainable world on planet B. Thank you for listening to Planet B, Everything Must Change. This series was produced by Freddie Stewart and made possible by the generosity of the Rosa Luxemburg Shifton. This episode was written by Harpreet Kaur-Paul, Dahlia Gabriel and Freddie Stewart. The music and sound was produced by Ben Heidemann and the podcast artwork was designed by Tamika George and Pietra Garoni. Just one final reminder that you can order a free copy of Perspectives on a Global Green New Deal, the illustrated book on which this series is based at www.global-gnd.com. You'll find the next documentary episode of Planet B right here on Navarra Media at the same time in the same place next week. And stay tuned for extended editions of our guest interviews, which we'll be publishing as bonus content. I've been your host, Harpreet Kaur-Paul. Thanks for listening. <laughs>